Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the eighth part in our series, Rome, the Decline of Democracy. Where we last left off, Nero was living a life of debauchery. After having just killed his mother, <clears throat> only to be disposed from power by the Senate, which ultimately resulted in him committing suicide. As Rome recovers from the ashes, both figuratively and literally, what new rulers will emerge in Nero's vacancy? Brett, take it away. Thanks for having me again, Aaron. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a good question. What new rulers will emerge? Uh, the answer is, in that first year, uh, a lot. So with Nero's suicide, we see the end of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. And with the end of that dynasty, we see a dramatic loss in official legitimacy. As we discussed in previous episodes, legitimacy is really important for a ruling government, the ruling class, the ruling apparatus. In order, it's the most, I would argue, uninformed, unfortunately, but I would argue that it's the most important thing that a government needs to have is legitimacy to govern, consensus, or not in Latin, like the approval of the people to be governed. And attacks on legitimacy or losses of legitimacy are existential threats to a country, more so than invading armies, more so than revolutions, more so than plague or even alien invasions. It's the most important thing. I want to kind of connect what you're saying very briefly, very briefly. About this, alien invasions? Uh, no, no, about legitimacy. And uh, I think this relates to Thomas Hobbes in many ways, because for him, you know, he had this idea of like the Leviathan or the structure. And what this is about is that legitimacy for, for I think Hobbes would be we're protecting the, the man with the strongest muscles, right? Or the man with the strongest weapons from just simply ruling. And that legitimacy means like an appeal to the rational or, the, or an appeal to the mind or to, or to the logic. So when we start getting away from legitimacy, we're actually getting a lot closer to rule by brute force and by muscles, not by logic or what's in the best interest of a society. And I, I, I think that maybe that will help the, the, the listeners quite understand what we mean by le, uh, legitimacy. That's fair. That's, that's a good point. So it's, you're correct. That, so humans are a cooperative species where, where pre- we're, we're wired to work together to form communities and build things that are greater than the sum of its parts. Teamwork is, well, teamwork makes the dream work, Aaron. And um, we see in our, our close neighbors, um, you know, the old and new world primates, they're the same way, right? They have very complex societies um, and those societies make every individual in the society better off in some way. Um, and I know it's, it's almost hard to conceptualize, but like even in our society, everyone who lives in our society, everyone is better off than they would be on their own. Well, OK, maybe everyone's not exactly right. I'm sure there are people who are like incarcerated that would have been better off not being incarcerated. But like even the people who are very, very poor generally are doing better than they would be doing if they were just out on their own. Because if they weren't, you always have the option to just go haul ass into the woods and live on your own, right? 
the yeah i you know a good a good analogy that i kind of like defer to sometimes is just think about high school and think about who were the kids that were running your high school i'll, I'll admit it right here on the show like i was a dork a nerd or whatever i was not ruling anything um but typically there's a power structure in like a high school which is not necessarily founded on legitimacy, like someone appealing for the best interest of a student, but just simply muscles, simply brute force. Like, if you mess with me, I'll kick your ass kind of mentality. And that that kind of like, although that looks cool on the outside, like, oh yeah, the strong guy is just like ruling over us. It actually has some very damaging effects on societies in the long run because people's fundamental needs are just Absolutely. not being met. And also it's in a fit, like I said, everyone, we all benefit from cooperation. And when the person at the top is at the top because of, of muscle, they are need to spend resources to maintain that level of, of authority and control that would have otherwise been used for more productive things, right? Um, when people work together, you can like, um, like it's like I don't I don't spend my money on on home defense stuff because I trust my neighbors to not rob me, right? And it's like we all, me and my neighbors on both sides, benefit from this cooperation. We can spend our money on other things, but if I thought I was safe, not because I trusted my neighbors, but because I thought I had the biggest guns, then I would have to buy the biggest guns. I would constantly be spending money on firearms. And well, that's food out of my mouth. That's books off my shelf. That's TVs out of my living room. You know what I mean? So, so there's a loss of legitimacy with the death of Nero. And with that loss of legitimacy, we're going to see over this year with this loss of legitimacy, with the, the, the end of the Julio-Claudian dynasty is a year of just chaos. Um, it's 68 to 69 uh, AD. And it's like, there's uh, like four or five emperors and each one lasts for like less than three months. You have Nero who is replaced by Galba, who is like an old soldier and uh you know he, he's too stingy and his troops don't like him and within like months they're like you know what i i hate this guy why are we doing what he says again i i totally forgot and he's dead replaced by um another guy otho otho is gonna be the new emperor um he's really greedy he's going to start his machinations but he's not like there's not even anything to say about him he like he lasts for like two months i think maybe three when he's replaced by a general named vitellius vitellius is going to last for a couple of months and then vitellius is going to be replaced finally by the last emperor in this this succession of, of awful people uh his name is vespasian and, and he's who I, I, I think we should talk about today. Absolutely. Uh, one, one thing I kind of want to point out here is that these guys that quickly succeed one another, they're all generals, right? Correct. And I think going back to like our high school analogy, they kind of have like the bully-like mentality where it's like me strong, me powerful, me have army, me take over. And they don't last all that long because in order to really sustain an empire for any any 
duration of time, you have to have a lot of intellect, you have to have a lot of thoughts, you have to have a lot of planning, a lot of wisdom, and a lot of basically mental skills and acumen and finesse to kind of, you know, co-opt the Senate to do what you want to do. Otherwise, it's just sheer chaotic. And that's why when we look at history, we don't really see people who really don't have much going on ruling over for long periods of time. And if they are ruling for long periods of time, there's probably a much wiser, smarter little cricket standing on their shoulder, whispering what they should be doing at all times. And I, I think that's kind of important of like, what what exactly happens when the strongest person in the room kind of just takes over? They typically don't, they don't, they don't last in that room that, that, that long. Well, I think it's, I, I don't know how, frankly, I don't know how smart Vitellius and Otho were in terms of, or how good they would have been at governing. Because the truth, I mean, Vitellius was was bad in the few time, the few like you know, basically days that he was em- that he was emperor. He practically bankrupted the government on uh, banquets and games and that kind of stuff. He's was clearly um, shaping up to be a, a hedonist emperor, but. It's not so much that they were bad emperors. It's that without the legitimacy, without the right to rule, um, they were just immediately challenged by other people. And it's like, so you you commit resources to win a battle. And then, I mean, I mean, so the final emperor in this year is Vespasian. And he wins not because he's the most competent or because he's you know, the, the most qualified to be the emperor, he wins because he was the most far away. He was, he was in Judea at the, at the time on the orders of Emperor Nero, putting down the first Roman Jewish war. The Jews uh, don't like being governed by the Romans and we'll see them cropping up in rebellions throughout Roman history. He has a little luck, this guy, that he just happened. He he kind of is out of the fray when it's most intense, and then he can kind of just swoop in. Oh, and, very and... much. Very much he's lucky. The luck of the Flavians. And it's, kind of, it's, like, it's like the U.S. in like World War II. We stay out of it, stay out of it, stay out of it. And then at the end, we just kind of come in and like mop yeah, and, and with, it, them, with everybody. It, no, I mean, that's, <laughs> the reasons that we did that and why he did it are different. But yeah, the effect is the same, which is like you're you come in fresh take out everyone who's an enemy and just pick scoop up all that glory and just be like, we're the best. And, you know, like USA. Right. And it's, it's, that's what he did. He was the farthest <laughs> away. It took him the longest to get to Rome. And by the time he got there, uh, Otho had already committed suicide. Vitellius was on the throne, but was greatly weakened by his battles with Otho and Vespasian and his armies were fresh and they just rolled right in and kicked him out and uh, replaced him. Vespasian, as the last of the emperor in the year of the four emperors, as you would imagine as being the last one, he lasts a little bit longer, right? He does a little bit better. Um, We're lucky. We're lucky? Someone's lucky, I guess, that he ends up not just being the luckiest of the generals, but he's also a very competent and and fair ruler, too. Uh, So the year is... Vespasian rules from 69 to 79 AD, rules for nine years. And um, in those nine years, his his main goal is very similar to uh, Augustus, where he wants to kind of like rebuild the Senate a little bit, who's maybe been kind of beaten up a bit from uh, their living under Nero. He wants to 
kind of like his his other thing is he's focused on Judea. He actually, even though he leads the Roman force against the Jews during the Jewish Roman War, he remembers them as like a fair and worthy enemy. And um, he has a lot of respect for for them. Right. So he's. Aw, that's yeah, so cute. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, we'll see that different emperors have different opinions of God's chosen people and he, they treat them differently. Got it. <laughs> Same thing with the Christians, right? Some emperors are very kind and judicious to the Christians and some of them feed them to lions. Yeah. I mean, that I, I you mentioned before that Nero was really on the. Um on the Christian lion feeding track of things. And then just for those listening, we will be talking about like the rise of Christianity soon because I, it, it does parallel also with. Uh, oh, it's with Christianity Rome. rises out of the fall of Rome, like a Phoenix. Actually, that's not quite right. It's more like, a, it's more like someone was building a house called Christianity inside another house called Rome. And then when Rome collapsed, the only house that was left was Christianity. And so like, that's what was like kind of like the skeleton the skeletal structure of rome left behind when the the empire fell okay so vespasian has taken over and he's a pretty yeah, decent he's, guy he's, he's expanding rome's reach in in britain he's very one of the things that makes him a good emperor that categorizes him as a good emperor is that he's very generous with his own personal money and very stingy with rome's money so he has he keeps a very tight budget, but is is always willing to to spend his own money to help. So like some there's stories where senators maybe are down on their luck and they don't have the finances to remain at senatorial rank. And Vespasian personally pays them to stay at that rank so they could stay in the upper class, which is very kind of him. Well, well, hold on now. He might be giving them money because it's like hey, remember I kind of paid your salary for a few years? I sort of need you to vote that way. Because I'm, wonder, I'm wondering if there's a little bit of like, he's using his, his generosity to kind of get people in his back pocket. Do you think there's a little bit of that going yeah, on Yeah, well? there, there could be. Um, <laughs> he, in general, is very good at propaganda. He mm. immediately sees the need that... so. One, the, the reason, one of the reasons that he is the last of the four emperors is because he recognizes the lack of legitimacy and takes steps to fix it beyond just having a bigger army than everyone else. He wages a propaganda campaign where it, like he prints coins, he builds statues that kind of like link him to like godlyhood and link him to the success of the empire, right? He has like a, a mantra, which is uh, victory or peace. It's like, we will either win or we won't be fighting at all and you'll be happy. And through this, over the course of uh, a decade or so, he successfully plants in the minds of the Romans that he is best qualified to rule, separate from his military strength. Hmm. Hmm. This is, I like this usage. Like, so he's using like very, this is something interesting because I see this a lot with like um, today and I see it a lot um, during the Russian revolution. I think um, with Lenin, like land, peace, and bread 
like three three freaking words and every Russian could recite them like like there was no tomorrow. And he seems to be going through this kind of appeal like, hey, um, I have a right to be here. And he's kind of making this correlation between his name and peace and prosperity. Oh, yeah. I mean, though, that's 100% what he's doing. And it's like we were talking about earlier. It's less if you can convince people to stop trying to kill you, you don't have to spend as much resources defending yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, He paid a ton of money to the or he patroned he contributed a ton of money to the arts to have good things written about him and his dynasty. Um, Certain certain Roman authors, famous Roman authors or historians, rather, like. Suetonius and Tacitus speak well of him, weirdly well, too well, to the <laughs> point where we, we as modern historians raise an eyebrow and are like, you have never been this nice to anyone else. Why are you being this nice to him? And it's like, there's a little bit of a propaganda thing going on here. A little bit of like, I don't, I guess Rome, they didn't have the laws that we have today where you have to say like, you know, this podcast and pro- this, this, uh, this historical antidote includes paid promotion, right? Like, <laughs> the, well, okay. What this reminds me, this actually happens a lot today because I think of the rich philanthropist that donates all this money and they get the you know the Rockefeller Library or whatever it is. Like they they usually give like a huge grant to to build a new research area, but then that kind of institution is sort of beholden to the interests of that philanthropist, whether they like it or not. Like you know if they if that philanthropist, and again, maybe that philanthropist is not doing anything nefarious or bad, but they could be like, hey, man, I, I really want to see this research come out like this. And it's like, well, this guy called, you know, this guy controls our purse. He can take away all our funding. We're going to lose half of our staff. Let's just write this article the way that they want it to look like. So I think there's a danger here where you 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 do create friends and you do create allies who will write nicely of you or produce research or produce things that you like, but then that comes at the cost of the absolute truth. Absolutely. We see parallels with this in lobbying and special interest groups. Um, we've talked about that in the past, um, but that's a lot of lobbying. When we think of lobbying, often we think of like lobbying as like um, nefarious. Mm. Right. It has a very, very negative connotation in the United States. Um, I don't know about you. When I picture lobbying, I picture uh, the movie. Thank you for smoking. Yeah. yeah, Remember that movie? Or it's like the evil cigarette companies that know that their product is killing people are paying basically shysters to to go to Congress and convince these people that. They're, what they're doing is, and actually, you know, I, I should I should say for our our, our non Yiddish speaking <laughs> people, a shyster is a Yiddish word that it's like someone who is is like unethical or un- knowingly unscrupulous, <laughs> right? Um, sorry, I, I don't, I don't want to use another language uh, without. No, right? so y- Yiddish is totally fine on this show, my friend. Especially like <laughs> New York Yiddish, right? <laughs> No, it's 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 our city. As our I language. grab my bagel and locks and and enjoy yeah. that. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, I, as, as just like a small anecdote, I can't tell you how many people who are, you know, obviously not Jewish and don't speak Yiddish, but know those words because they're like New York <laughs> slang is like a a mel a mel a, 
a melding of like English, Italian, a little bit of Russian and Yiddish. And, but anyway, anyway, I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, so we think of them as like these shysters who, who are like knowingly going out to like corrupt our, our seat of power and, and change it for their ends. But really a lot of lobbying is, is just like, it's like, okay, we have, we like, uh, I'll just use like, let's say like oil as an example. Right. It's like you work in the oil industry and you think it's important that um, the government allows oil companies to mine in a certain area. It might not be because you're you're greedy and you just want all the money. You might legitimately think it is necessary for the, the safety of the country, for us to be energy independent. And you might legitimately believe that the, the environmental impact will not be that bad and so you send people who agree with you to speak on your behalf to the seat of power and so in that light there's nothing explicitly wrong going on here and when we talk about Vespasian and we talk about his propaganda camp campaign it's probably much of that it's not him being like I want you to trick people into thinking I'm a good guy he's like you said he's just like he's like I'm a great guy I'm going to patron the arts and the people who I patron are going to be like yeah you know what he is a great guy I'm going to write some nice things about him this is yeah so I I think that this is more of pragmatism at work here where it's like I need these people's support and like maybe maybe if we look at this art institution right and I think this is an important thing to look at the wealthy philanthropist comes along and gives you a bunch of money. Yeah, 10% or 15% of the stuff you're doing isn't really where your heart and soul lie. Fair enough. But then you still get this extra money to do real art that you're passionate about and so forth. So I, I think if done correctly and the and the ends are not terrible, then some good can come of this. The, and I think that's what he's trying to do here. Yeah, and then the other side of that too is you have this idea of like, you there are people who already like you but are maybe let's say in the minority and you through your finances empower them to reach wider audiences yeah so you didn't change anyone's mind you didn't like go out and and say like write nice things about me uh you you went to someone who already liked you and was like here's a bunch of money do whatever you want and of yeah. course they say good things about you. That's what they wanted to do in the first place. You know, it's like, um, definitely an underrated skill. Like, um, every, every person you burn in this world just becomes like a future enemy. So you can't be, you can't, it's a balance. You can't be so super agreeable that you betray who you are, but at the same time, if you can make someone an ally, just go ahead and do it. If it doesn't betray fundamentally your principles or who you are, it just pays to be decent to people and have them genuinely think highly of you, especially if you are in, you know, trying to consolidate power. Very wise words. Yeah, I, I would agree for, for sure. So Vespasian is running this propaganda campaign that's kind of like solidifying his, um, his position, not just in like complete control militarily, but also he's like, what's best for Rome? And he's, it's working. He's, he, I mean, it does work. He does not get replaced by some other usurper. He, he rules for 10 years and uh, he builds back up the, the treasury a bit. I wanna, I, I should say though, that 
he's not like this like perfect ruler. He people who speak out against him are punished. He he makes an enemy of the Stoics. Really, or, I, I love the Stoics. How could you upset the poor Stoics? Well, so with the Stoics. <laughs> I shouldn't say he made an enemy of the Stoics. It's more like the Stoics made an enemy of him. They were their their teachings of like self-reliance and open-mindedness go against his teachings of like I make I keep you safe, I bring you victory. And so like many Stoic teachers were tried and I don't want to say many were executed, but let's just say punished. Okay. Man, this is inter- this is like like kind of like a uh, I sort of see like a modern day like libertarian revolt against like no 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 we're we're fine over here like we we can totally take care of ourselves and Vespasian's like no 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 we're the state like we need to kind of come in here and and you know obviously I'm trying to use a modern analogy here is there like how how is Vespasian ruining their stoic way of life that that that's I guess what I'm kind He's of scratching. not ruining their way of life that's <laughs> the thing is that it's just like. Their te- he's weary of their teachings. Hmm. And and like you said, you, you literally just said it of like, don't make enemies when you don't have to. There Even today, we have people who can't help but make enemies when they don't have to. Right. Yeah. Where it's like, it's like, you know, like the new the new order comes in and they're like, we're going to be doing things this way. And everyone agrees. And then you could just keep your mouth shut and do your own thing and not say anything, but instead you jump on the internet and you're like, this new guy is terrible and I hate him and everyone should be against him. And you're, you're putting a target on your back. Yeah. Yeah. Some people just can't help it. Were the Stoics at this point, a a sizable number in Rome or were they just like an outlier community? Yeah. I mean, Stoic philosophy at this point is a very popular Uh, philosophy in Rome. Uh, that makes yes. a little bit more sense because if if they were just like you know like the Amish or something or just like a, a fringe group there on the side, I would ignore them. But maybe maybe he was worried that people would worship their teachers or their kind of like belief system over him, and then there was a bit of a vanity thing going on there. It's I I don't know exactly how many there were but i know that it wasn't like a very small fringe stoicism was a known a well-known philosophy at the time right yeah yeah and in fact we'll see in like a few decades like you know we'll have a stoic emperor yes i i'm aurelius i'm waiting for i'm waiting for it man i love it (laughs) stoicism stoicism is coming back my friend it's actually uh it's it's starting to to rise man but we'll we'll get there we'll get there when we talk about aurelius so let's okay so vespicia he has a a war against the stoics that's his one flaw okay forgivable anything else that he does that's wrong or pretty much a hunky-dory job for the 10 years i mean there's plenty (laughs) (laughs) there's plenty that he does that's wrong but that's not what he's known for. He's known for his his amicable personality. He's known for his military prowess. He's, like I said, he's known for donating money to senators and equestrians for who maybe are slipping on their finances. He donates a lot of money to cities and towns that are damaged by um, natural disasters. Vespasian was known what he's known for now is his his gentle personality 
his military prowess, like I had said before, his donating of money to senators, equestrians, cities, towns, uh, municipalities, if they had those then, that were like kind of down on their luck. Like I said, he was very generous with his own money. He was, he, he supported the arts a lot. He was very generous with people who could read and write. He liked history. He is a historian emperor, right? Um, Why don't we have him on the show? I think he'd be great. Yeah, I mean, I'll <laughs> see if I can find his phone number. Um, <laughs> he, um, he, he was good friends with the, like, what history often calls the first ever historian, the first ever historian and naturalist, a man named Pliny the Elder. Maybe you've heard of, maybe not, maybe rings a bell. And he, he was a good emperor. And also... While and that's that's basically it. And then it's it's worth briefly mentioning that while he was towards the end of his reign, he was grooming his eldest son, a man named Titus, to be the emperor. And Titus was much beloved by um, by the people of Rome. And when when Vespasian uh, died and Titus took over, you know everyone was really happy. And for the most part. Titus did a good job. Titus, I mean, <laughs> he ruled for two years, so it's hard to do like a terrible job in, in two years, so to speak. He went out on top. Yes. <laughs> yes. We're not 100% sure how he died exactly. Maybe, maybe uh, poison, maybe like food poisoning. Suetonius says he died of natural causes, but we're not 100% sure. Some people accuse his younger brother Domitian of killing him so that he could seize control. Uh, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that Titus uh, took over for a small amount of time and, and did a good job. Like uh, the, I, the only reason I mention Titus now is because he was the emperor during uh, a huge natural disaster in Rome, the, the eruption of, Pompe- of Mount Vesuvius in the the, the resort town of Pompeii. Mm. Um, Titus donated huge amounts of money. He and he made sure that the consuls for the year, their main focus was was quelling the the unrest in in Pompeii and getting things to normal and supporting the people who got hurt by this natural disaster. Titus was very much an emergency ruler who ruled during a time of of natural disaster and did. I mean, if, if I could editorialize, he did a solid job, right? <laughs> now, this is kind of like I want to pause for a moment here because this is really important because I think how a ruler responds to natural disasters or just um, things that kind of just spur up in the moment says quite a bit about them. And I, I was having this conversation uh, before with another gentleman, and we talked about this idea that when the disaster happens, you have to be willing to kind of put aside your agenda or what it exactly it is that you want to do or or um, you kind of have to you kind of have to have a very adaptable mindset of like, okay, this has just happened. And I, I want to talk about like, do you think, Brett, that like great leaders have a very reactionary kind of muscle to them? Or do you think do you think that um like that's not as important because I, I, I definitely think that um, you should have a solid game plan, but you need to also have a reactionary muscle as well. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we don't always see it because some rulers do just 
have the privilege of ruling over general prosperity and they don't this this metal of theirs never gets tested but yeah i mean it's so important that you have leaders who are able to adapt to situations that were unplanned and uncalled for and and i mean like dear lord aaron i mean it's 2020 and and we're living through the worst natural disaster that we that we have seen in our lives that our parents have seen in their lives and probably our grandparents might be the first ones to be able to say like well we lived through you know the spanish influenza so we, we, we've been there before <laughs> yeah but may, maybe not and maybe even grandparents we're talking generations since we've had a, a crisis like this now this is important because Oh, it's definitely do, do, But I, I think it's also important in how we evaluate leaders because, you know, do you think it's ever acceptable for a leader to be like, oh, man, that's a volcano, man. I that I, I was taken off guard by that or, or you know, anyone else. Like, because I think that we we do have leaders that sometimes say things like that. Like, man, this, this, was, this was out of my control, man. I, I couldn't have seen it happen. But then there's this idea that I imagine that there must have been in Rome – a lot of uh, preventative mechanisms already in place for something like this to occur. There must have been already a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of organization that allows Rome to kind of address a volcano going off and how 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 to like deal with these situations. So, you know, I'm wondering if a leader has that responsibility. Like, if any leader can just be like, "Man, you know, I was I was caught off guard. Never saw that one coming." Like, how how legitimate is that excuse? Um, I mean, one, I don't think Rome had any contingency plans for volcanoes. They, <laughs> I mean, they knew of volcanoes, but I don't think during the reign of Nero, there were already some sizable earthquakes that were causing damage in Pompeii, but they did not expect a mm. volcano. There was no playbook, so to speak, for, for emperors to follow. And in terms of what Titus did, he did go above and beyond to address this issue. He made this the center point of his his administration, if you can call it administration, which I think you can. And so really, this is not a question of how good are is the leader at dealing with crises. And it's more of a question, in my opinion, of how good is the leader at prioritizing goals and issues, right? Mm, mm, mm. Are you capable of understanding that like you've been telling yourself these are the priorities your entire buildup? Because that's that's kind of how you even begin the aspirations of being a leader, right? Is you're like, I have some priorities that aren't being addressed and now I need to be in charge because I need to see that those priorities do get addressed, right? Because this, you know, I, I like what you're saying here, and it makes a lot of sense because I think that a lot of rulers are so focused on their image, right? They're so focused on like having the best possible image that when a crisis occurs, they don't really deal with it. They don't feel like dealing it. They, they, it kind of falls into a state of neglect because they're like, whoa, whoa, that doesn't pertain to my image directly. But then what I'm, you know, what I'm banging my head about, Brett, is like, the way you deal with that crisis is actually what enhances your image. That's what people will remember you for, for how well you dealt when that, you know, that, that's why we like, you know, FDR. It's like, we, we like the way that he handled World War II, you know, like we like the fact that he kind of was the man for the job when that 
you know, when the situation came, if he was like, no, 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 I'm too busy being FDR over here, we probably wouldn't really like the guy all that much. I mean, yeah, that's what happened with Nero is there was the great Rome fire and Nero, I mean, Nero and even Caligula a little bit are obsessed with their personal image and they do things that they think will make people like them more, but that doesn't include actually helping people. It's just like games and parties. And as we've seen with the the United States response to COVID, it's been weak and, and terrible because like you just said, right? It's like, it, it, not, it doesn't affect your image directly, not interested, mm, right? Yeah. So it, it kind of ties to like, I, I think, you know, in psychology, and since you were a psychology, you know, you were a psychology major, like narcissistic personality disorder, where it's like, I, I can't like, like, I, I want to go to the Rome fire under Nero for a sec. I want to kind of like actually compare Nero to Titus right now. And I think they're a really good contrast of, of two different approaches here. Let's just say that the Roman fire could not have been prevented. There was no way that they saw that thing coming. Great. Okay. Fair enough. And the way that Nero reacts to that fire, whether the stories are true that he was just there, you know, playing his, you know, musical instrument, the lyre on some hilltop and not doing that, is that his mind in that moment is like, how do I look, how do I make myself look good? How can I continue to, to sell, to continue selling myself? And, and that kind of obsession blinds him to like literally the ashes and amber that are basically encapsulating all of Rome, right, right before his like very eyes, so to speak. Whereas with Titus, it's like, you even said that, that Pompeii was like a recreational, like, like area, like maybe even away from Rome. Rome. It's a resort town. Yes. Yeah, it's Pop a resort Pop town. It's, like, a it's resort something town. that you're not even like looking at constantly. But the fact that this man is able to see that, oh my God, there's a, there's, there's lava there. There's there, you know, there's people that are burned. People have lost everything and, and so forth. And this is happening somewhere a little bit further removed from where he directly is, shows that one of the things that any good ruler needs is some some sense of empathy and the ability to think outside of themselves. And I know that sounds like a very rudimentary and elementary set of skills, but it's something that gets really overlooked. There's There's something to be said about gravity here, which is that ruler good rulers, do not underestimate problems, whether because they're smart or they're lucky, they just don't. When we look back at good rulers and we see them handling prop, very rarely do we say, I, like, I'm, I'm struggling now to think of an example of a time where there was some kind of crisis in the past and we remember and we say, oh, that ruler overreacted to that crisis. <laughs> they offered too much aid and they were too careful rebuilding and they and it, it caused problems. We don't say that. I, I too many water bottles. Too many water bottles that Yeah, I mean, like, I'm, no, I'm serious. Can you think of an example of that? I've never no, I've never I've never I've never heard that of that either of, of overreacting. I mean we, if anything we could just say, you know, vigilance. Like there's extreme levels of vigilance. But I think that vigilance fundamentally comes down to a care of others like that's what i think makes someone very vigilant is that they fundamentally see outside of their immediate existence and their immediate self-worth and and have a consideration or a care or the ability if nero would have just sat for a second in his chair and been like 
God, how would I feel if I lost my whole house in a fire? Man, I'd feel pretty bad. Man, I, I, I ought to do something to help people. Well, I think- to Nero's credit, he did offer some assistance and some you know, um, relief to the people who suffered from it. But he also greatly benefited from the fire itself, which, again, to compare to modern politics, you know, especially in the United States, uh, there's many people who maybe did provide some relief to the U.S. for COVID, but also themselves greatly benefited, which make which raises the question, which raises questions in the common people of like, did you do everything you could have done to fix this? Mm. Did you just pay lip service? Like, is that all? Is that all we were worth to you? Was like the bare minimum? Because, like I just said, I literally can't think of a time in history where we remember rulers as like they took too many precautions but i can think of a ton of rulers where we think of them and we say they did not do enough yes and it's also just i i like what you mentioned about nero there is that when he is helping there's also like another angle of oh well this this quietly also takes care of my business interests and so forth in some other yeah. direction and i'm like well that's that's not really you know, true leadership, because I think true leadership comes with some degree of sacrifice. And, you, you know, in order to help the people in Pompeii, you might have to sacrifice funding for something that you want. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just being hypothetical here, but let's say they had money to build the Titus library or the Titus monument. Okay. Let's just pretend that that was a case. It, it obviously wasn't. I think a good ruler like Titus, if he had any brains, would be like, okay, we don't need to like build this monument glorifying me. Let's go ahead and take that money. Let's reallocate the money for the Titus monument and deal with the Pompeii situation. Whereas a Nero would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. We need to get the money from somewhere else. That Nero statue is going right up there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, you, you said it uh, at the beginning of this, which is that that flexibility is so important. That, yeah, that ability yeah. to, to change and be like, my priorities have shifted, our priorities have shifted, we're doing something new now, is so important in a good leader. To, and to, to be able to recognize where the priorities need to be at any given moment and then apply resources to those priorities is how we remember good leaders and bad leaders. More yes. so more so than we remember them as like, this guy was mean or this guy was nice. I mean, history does not remember Winston Churchill as an oafish alcoholic bore of a man who was mean and pushy and aggressive. Yeah. But he is that. He is all those things. If you read his biographies, you will see that he is not a pleasant person. History remembers him as the man who prioritized England's and Europe's defense against Germany in World War II and, and allocated proper resources to ensure the survival of the, of the, the state of England during the 1940s. Right? Yes, yes. History does not remember Abraham Lincoln as this like boring and uh, uh, slow-witted man who was a little bit ugly, frankly, right? He's not the <laughs> nicest looking guy. They remember him as the man who prioritized union um, ref- union uh, reformation above everything else and put in the necessary resources to ensure that the Civil War went in the direction of the North and not the Confederate States. Yes. Right? I think this, you know, to, to tie it all together, I think that 
this reminds me of something you said in one of our first few episodes together, that it's the man who doesn't build the statue of himself that gets remembered. Like, you know, it was a lot of rich, wealthy Roman folk that were like, yeah, I'm going to commission a marble statue of myself. It's the guy who actually did some really incredible, awesome stuff. And then people decided to build a statue to honor that person, that they actually are the ones that get remembered. Uh, Brett, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This concludes the eighth part in our series, Rome, the Decline of Democracy. I'm Aaron Azrod.